these third party interpretation services might draw on that outdated interpretation and mm. say something's disease causing when we now know that it isn't. Until recently, genetic testing was something that only a scientist or specialist clinician could access. Now though, for around £100, you can send off a sample of your DNA and receive a detailed report telling you about your health, ancestry, and even, if you believe the companies who sell you the tests, your talents. These direct-to-consumer genetic tests are becoming ever popular, but are there problems with them that consumers and clinicians need to know about? I'm Tom Nolan, GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ. To discuss this with me, I'm joined by Rachel Horton, clinical training fellow at the University of Southampton. Hi, Rachel. Hi, thanks for inviting me. That's right. Thanks for coming. Annika Lucasen, professor of clinical genetics at the University of Southampton and chair for the British Society of Genetic Medicine. Hi, Annika. Hi there. And Jude Hayward, GP and RCGP joint clinical champion for genomics. Hi, Jude. Hello, hello. So let's start by outlining what these genetic tests are. Uh, how long have they been around, uh, Rachel? Um, so I think they've been around for quite a long time, actually. I mean, the first ones uh, seemed to be available end of the 1990s, and then moving into kind of 2000s, they started doing ones that look more broadly at disease risks and things as well as ancestry. Um, and I think it's a really very much a growing industry um, and now as you said there's ones which claim to look at things like talent and even more obscure things like wine preferences and stuff like that uh, but I think in um, in 2016 they said there were about um, nearly 250 companies which seem to be selling some sort of DNA test online so they've been around for a long time but I think it's very much a growing industry. I think a figure we've both heard is 26 million tests like this have been sold worldwide wow that's a huge number yeah and they cost about it's right they're about 100 pounds are they not so they're not that expensive in some yeah some I, think, people. I think it's very variable depending on the test and there are some ones now which use kind of genome sequencing which are considerably more expensive but i think kind of a typical entry-level one that would tell you something a bit about your ancestry and a bit about your health or that would claim to would cost about 150 pounds okay so uh if somebody buys me one of these tests for christmas uh what, what happens next? I open the box up. What, what do I do? Uh, so I think you'd, you'd get this this present um, and you'd open it up and inside there'd be instructions as to how to provide a sample for genetic testing. And that's usually kind of a saliva sample and quite easy to do. Um, and there'd be instructions as to how you send it off to the laboratory and um, kind of the turnaround time for your results, which right. I think is often about kind of four to eight weeks. Right. So um, it's just a case of sample of saliva, pop, pop it in the post and then wait a few weeks. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of information and things around the test which you'd be encouraged as a consumer to read and could look up, but I think the simplicity of actually doing the test, it can be as simple as just doing the pot that you've got in your present or just clicking the button online to order your own kit. Then you do the sample and send it off and wait and see what comes back. Okay, and what happens when the sample gets to the lab, Annika? Um, well, it depends on which company we're looking at. So, as Rachel says, there's so many different companies around, but um, the vast majority at the moment do a um, user technique called SNP array-based technique, which uh, stands for single nucleotide polymorphism. And basically what they do is they look at lots of variants throughout our genetic code to see which variant you've got at that particular position. Um, and that technique is really good at identifying common variants. Um, so... 
what the lab does is look at the uh, variants throughout your genetic code and um, it will then look at different variations and tell you either um, how your ancestors have migrated across the globe over the last few thousands of years and give you a result about your uh, sort of ancestral background. But it might also look at variation that gives you predispositions to disease or uh, protections to various disease. But but I've, but actually, then they're not sequencing the whole of your genetic code. Which no, might they're be not a surprise sequencing it. But what they are doing is looking at your whole genetic code at the bits that vary. So actually, all our genetic codes are identical to a very large extent. So 99.9% identical. So actually, you don't need to um, often look at the entire genetic code to mm. be able to look at disease predispositions. Right. You're just looking at the variation. Yeah. And those tests are really good at picking up common variation. So right. they're highly accurate for that. And we might see later what they're not so good at doing. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, right. So then they obviously pop all that together, uh, create a report for you, which you can usually access online or or they send it back in the post, I guess. Um, it's usually, I think most of the companies give you an online uh, version that's maybe password protected or not. Yeah. And some of them will actually provide you the zip file of all the data, of the raw data that you can then, then do with what you want. Okay. So you mentioned that the test results can be sent to a third party. How does that work? Um, so um, the direct-to-consumer company that did your test would provide you with a file which essentially lists the um, variants they found in your genetic code. Um, but that file would contain a lot more than the company directly reported back to you, and, and some of them might be artefacts. Um, but you can then upload that report to various third-party things which essentially cross-reference all those variants against um, databases of genetic variation. Uh, and give you an interpretation of what those variants mean. Mm. Um, but because that company doesn't have all the information about the process by which that raw data came about, um, I think there are two issues. One, it doesn't have a way easily to call out which are artefacts. So you might see something, think that looks bad and report it as such. Um, and two, often the databases that they draw on to um, make those interpretations are quite out of date. Um, I think kind of over the years, I think there's been progressively more awareness of the kind of vast range of normal variation and that there's so much more variation in our genetic code than anyone originally thought. But um, historically, um, when you know genetic tests were first being done, I think quite often a, a sequence change or a variation was found that was thought to be linked to a condition and that was uploaded onto a database. If those haven't then been corrected as we've learnt more, then um, these third-party interpretation services might draw on that outdated interpretation and mm. say something's disease-causing when we now know that it isn't. So if we look at what the sort of health, type of health information that that might include, what, what would that be? Um, so I think there's quite a wide variation and I think often they, it, it, I get the impression that things are picked to be on the test because they're technically more easy to test for than because they're necessarily particularly health relevant but um, they might include things like um, predisposition to common disease um, and they might do that kind of thing through doing a, a polygenic risk type calculation where they look at loads of common variants um, across your genetic code and kind of from that put you in some sort of risk bracket um, for getting that condition. And what sort of conditions do they um, tend to So things at? like um, type 2 diabetes, I think there's one okay. that's kind of come out recently that claims to look at your risk for that. Right. 
Um, then there are other ones which tend to look um, more specifically at particular um, variants um, known to be associated with particular conditions. Um, so for an example of that would be the um, APOE4 allele for Alzheimer's disease uh, gets looked at by some of these tests. Mm. Um, and there they're looking at a kind of a single point of interest in the genetic code and, and kind of seeing what you've got at that point. The sorts of research in this area has really been going since the early 1990s, I would say, looking at genome-wide association studies. And there's lots and lots of papers that report various risks associated between particular variants or combination of variants in certain diseases. Um, and those studies won't all say exactly the same thing, but um, some sort of composite uh, result is used for these tests quite often. And I think one of the things also to remember here is that when we talk about genetics, we quite often um, sort of squidge it all together and we, uh, we, uh, we maybe conflate uh, a, a disease that is primarily caused by one variation in a genetic code. And that sort of disease might be something like Huntington's disease, where it's very strongly inherited with other diseases that have a strong component, but that doesn't come from one particular variation. It comes from a whole load of um, genetic variants throughout the code, interacting perhaps with environmental or random factors to cause the disease. Um, and that's a really wide spectrum that looks very different mm. in your test result. Um, yet, I think the public discourse often thinks of it as one thing. It's one thing, yeah. So I understand that there are some disease-causing mutations that actually rarely seem to cause a disease at all. Can you try and explain that? Well, many genetic variations are only part of a wider picture of how it's going to affect your health. And there are other factors like your age and your environmental risk factors like smoking and things that might influence whether it causes a, a condition in a particular person. Um, so the, um, I guess the BRCA genes would be a, a good example of that in that there might be quite a though they increase a person's risk of breast and ovarian cancer there's there's a range to that and people will sit at different points along that range and there'll be other genetic factors and environmental factors that play into that but certainly some people have a disease causing um BRCA variant and never develop breast and ovarian cancer mm. um but I think the often the perception is very much kind of if you've got this variant that will happen if you don't then it won't that the more we've learned about our genetic code we've realised that there are very few single strong risk factors. Most risk factors act in a context. Right. A bit like smoking isn't necessarily going to give you Exactly. Or well, high blood pressure isn't yeah. necessarily going to cause your stroke. Mm. Um, and the more we look at healthy people, the more we realise that if you look at their genetic code, you might find all sorts of variation that has been published as really being quite nasty and predictive mm. but they living to old age without any of the signs of that and we need to know much more about that so far we've only really studied genomes of ill people to confirm a diagnosis if you start off with a genome of a healthy person mm. you're much less able to predict what might happen to them in the future than we thought we were able to so I've got my results then and um, hopefully I found that I'm you know low risk of developing diabetes and and into getting dementia one day um but what if i get a problem I, I guess i might go to my gp and ask for for some help with interpreting that or even for a referral for something if, if i've been identified as as being high risk of developing a particular condition uh, jude as a gp has, has that happened to you 
Uh, yes, it has. And uh, I, I have had other GPs who have said that it's happened to them as well. It, it can be quite bewildering almost being faced by a report that comes from one of these companies because it can contain a vast amount of information and almost be quite overwhelming. And sometimes it's quite overwhelming for the patient as well. So picking out the sorts of things which may be helpful or not, it, it can be very difficult. Either way, I think it is, it is important for GPs when they're faced with this sort of information to still keep very much in mind that the results may well be inaccurate, may not be very helpful, and they should still step back from the report and actually manage the patient in front of them as they normally would. So, for instance, if somebody is concerned that they've been informed by one of these tests that they have a higher risk of diabetes, we would still just talk to them generally about lifestyle advice, healthy diet, keeping active, maintaining a healthy weight. And actually, that's much more important in keeping them healthy than paying attention to these sorts of results. I think that's really important, Jude, because I, I suspect that there is a, a bit of a sense of genetic testing somehow being more accurate or more predictive than other types of tests. So I think that message is really important to get across that actually um, treat a lot of these uh, tests as, as if you would without the test results in front of you. Hmm. And do we know about how accurate or how predictive a test, a genetic test for diabetes risk is compared to say you know, a Q, Q risk or Q diabetes or, or some of the things we're more used to as GPs and clinicians in, in using? I've, yes, I think that's really hotly contested at the moment. And the, the new kid on the block is very much using polygenic risk scores, which is looking at all these variants around the gene for predicting common diseases. And I think um, the jury is still out as to how much they add. There's a lot of talk about cardiovascular um, polygenic risks adding to Q risks and that being introduced in practice in the near future. Mm. Um, I suppose that's a slightly different topic to what we're... Um, well, no, I, I think I would echo what... I would want to echo what you said, Annika. I think the bottom line is we don't know how useful they are. We don't have the evidence yet to say... Um, how much they do contribute and whether the information they contribute is in fact evidence-based. A lot of the polygenic risk scores that have been used in research actually differ, so it's very hard to compare. I think it's also really important to remember that the information that we use at the moment to predict cardiovascular risk is validated. So the Q-risk score, which every GP will use virtually every day in their practice to predict cardiovascular risk is validated and we use that and there are clear thresholds at which we should, we should discuss treatment with medications such as statins. So these are evidence-based and validated, but adding genomic information into that we don't know how useful that's going to be yet. The evidence just isn't there yet. Yes, I think one point maybe to add, I don't know what, what you think about this, Jude, is that adding in polygenic risk scores is a public health screen, really, isn't it? It's trying to screen people yes. into high, middle, low risks and then uh, treat accordingly. Whereas I think people often hear a genetic test result as something that's predictive about them. And Tommy, you asked the yeah. question about how predictive is it? This is not re these tests aren't predictive tests on an individual level. They're useful on a population okay. um, public health level. So somebody might look at their, their polygenic risk score, say, of, of developing prostate cancer and see that it's, let's say, 15 percent or 20 percent um, and actually think that that might be rather high. Um, 
But actually, when you compare that with the the, the sort of background risk, yes. then actually it may not be. Yeah. Is, is that right? I think that's really important because a polygenic risk score might um, make you think your risk is high because if it compares the higher category with the lower category, the risk, there is a, a, a fold difference. Mm. But the important thing is to compare it with your absolute risk or the general population risk. Um, and then it can look very different in terms of risk mm. predisposition. And yeah, so I think people do perceive it differently when there's been some genetic test involved, as in, um, I think Mike Parker, who's the genetics forum with Annika, um, mentioned kind of people feel differently about a genetic risk of something relative to saying, oh, your granddad had that, and the sort of information and how you would react to it, even if it literally means the same thing in terms of your actual numerical mm. risk, it feels quite different to be told that a genetic test has shown you've got a risk of something. It feels technical and accurate and... Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, scientific. And I think, uh, speaking from a primary care point of view, my concern would then be people requesting uh, the blood test, the PSA test, when they're asymptomatic. And, you know, th there are um, evidence-based nationally implemented screening programmes for bowel cancer, for breast cancer, for cervical cancer. Um, but I think we're all very well aware of the limitations of the PSA and, and the reasons why it hasn't be adopt been adopted as a national screening test. So my concern would be that people would then come to their GP and be over-requesting these sorts of blood tests, which which are problematic in themselves. Annika, are there are other examples you can share. Yeah, and uh, in fact, some of these came to light through uh, my clinical practice, um, where we were being referred, um, me and my colleagues are being referred people who ostensibly had a um, mutation in a gene that gave a very high predisposition to cancer. And there's several examples of this, um, both in the centre that I work in, but also nationally. Um, and to use one example, uh, somebody who had um, had a test like this, she'd actually been given um, a test as a present, an ancestry test, but had um, downloaded her raw data from that result and sent it off to a secondary analysis company, which are there's lots of those around that you can easily access online. And that had come back with a, a BRCA1 BRCA1 gene mutation. So she then came to the genetic clinic um, to discuss having risk-reducing surgery of both her breast and her ovaries. Um, one of the things that we did, first of all, was confirm that um, in an NHS-approved laboratory, because we weren't quite sure the um, the quality assurance of the, the test that she brought with her, and were rather surprised to find that we couldn't confirm it. We repeated the sample um, and it proved it was her sample and uh, confirmed that she did not have the mutation that various different companies had told her she did have. Mm. And at first we thought, gosh, this must be really rare. And then we began to realise that it was perhaps more common uh, than rare. And at around the same time, um, colleagues in um, Exeter, Caroline Wright and colleagues, um, did a, a, a very interesting study where they looked at a, a large population in UK Biobank, which is a collection of um, half a million uh, healthy people. And there they showed that actually a lot of um, these tests that use the technology that the direct-to-consumer testing kits use uh, are very bad at um, call, at calling rare variants accurately. So the, the technique is good at finding common variants, but actually it miscalls or misdiagnoses something that's very rare. And in their study where they looked at um, the difference between the 
the SNP test and the sequencing test in the BRCA1 and 2 gene. Rachel, you can um, help me here. But I think that only 4 or 5% of the apparent mutation findings in UK Biobank were true positive. So 95% of them were false positives. Yeah, that's right. So the positive predictive value was only 4.2%. Yeah. And that was of a... Uh, a, BRCA, a positive BRCA test using the SNP, S- technology. The SNP technology compared to looking at it by sequencing. Right, that's that's quite shocking, it isn't is, it? Yeah, yeah. And is that um, is that information currently well um, conveyed to the people you know, receiving these tests to consumers? No, I think um, probably um, lots of people are really shocked by that. Lots of clinical colleagues are really shocked by it. Interestingly, I think there's a, a component of the research community that knows this very well and thinks it's an obvious thing right. according to the technology. Um, and therefore, uh, you might have thought it would never enter the health service. And of course, it wouldn't have entered the health service for that reason. But because it's gone via a, a direct consumer test, and the output from that has come into the health service. That's how we've got to mm. um, see this happening in practice. Mm. But I think your question is absolutely right. We need to do much, much more work on getting that message across um, to our clinical colleagues, but also to members of the public who are uh, uh, requesting these tests. Mm. So for a, a GP like yourself, um, Jude, I suppose the first thing you do if somebody has a, a positive bracket test from one of these uh, direct consumer tests is, is to repeat it or to refer the, the patient? Well, I, I mean, I think that's, you know, that that's a really good point. Because coming back to what Annika said, you know, um, part of we see the role of the colleges raising awareness amongst about the issues Annika's just mentioned to GPs, because GPs may not be aware that these tests have a potential for inaccuracy and so they may be tempted to act on the results and perhaps refer directly to a breast surgeon or to a gynecologist but it is important for us to get the message out again through primary care that these results may be inaccurate and that they should actually be managed again as anyone else in the NHS the family history examined and then referred on to clinical genetics for confirmation or otherwise um, um, for these sorts of test results. Uh, one thing I suppose to emphasise is that these techniques are generally very accurate. But mm. when it comes to looking at something that is a rare variant, it is really bad at deciding whether it is or not. So it's only in situations that are very rare that it's likely to mm. get it wrong. But of course, the rarer the variant, the more likely it is to carry a significant um, disease risk with it. So the the scarier it looks the right. more likely it is to be wrong. Right. And with, with BRCA in particular, um, I think many, many people in the public, and probably myself too, think of this as a, a gene, but, but actually it's not as straightforward as that, is it? Or Absolutely. So uh, I think that's a very common uh, thinking about genes in general, that many genes have lots of different variations between uh, within them and that it doesn't matter which variant interrupts the message from that gene that will still cause a disease mm. so it isn't just looking at a particular bit of the genetic code it's actually trawling through the several thousand letters mm. of that genetic code to see is there a variation within um, that gene and for BRCA1 and BRCA2 if you 
put them all together, it's not that rare. But each individual variant in mm. that, that runs in that family might be really quite rare, which is why they're more likely to be false positives. But also, um, I believe, false negatives too in this situation. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, um, no, I think very much so. Because um, a number of the um, direct-to-consumer testing companies that... Um, aim to look at, at genes like BRCA will actually only look at a tiny proportion of the variations that could predispose to breast and ovarian cancer. Um, so, um, for example, um, the 23andMe company looks at three particular variants um, which are known to increase the risk of breast and ovarian cancer, and they are quite explicit about that in their test. But it does mean that there's um, huge numbers of potential variants that could be there increasing a person's chance of breast and ovarian cancer that the test wouldn't look for or check um, so I think um, there would be a you know a strong chance if people didn't read all that kind of contextual information around the test that they think oh I've had a bracket test they didn't find anything so that's mm. kind of all clear mm. um, I saw one um, picture on Twitter actually which um, a bit of an a, like analogy where there was like this picture of a chest x-ray um, on one side where it was like sequencing test and on the other side it had basically three tiny little windows cut in so you could only see the chest x-ray at three different points um, as sort of showing the kind of potential limitations of looking in that way if you're only looking at three bits of the gene there's a whole bigger picture that you right. didn't see and again, I was just going to echo again, uh, uh, it, this emphasises the importance of getting the message out to GPs that, that tests can be false negative as well. And that if people come in saying, oh, I'm not concerned about my family history anymore because I've had a negative test through this company, that GPs shouldn't take it at face value and should still step back and go through the family history again and manage accordingly. Yeah, that's a really important point. The, the figures aren't quite so scary, but I think they're still quite scary. Um, so the, the three variants that I looked at in the um, test that Rachel mentioned were chosen because they are of high prevalence in certain populations. So there's a good reason why they chose them. But actually looking in um, northern European populations, there's a, an 80% false negative rate. So if you have a negative test through that only looks at the three variants, um, there's an 80% chance that the test will miss another variant in the gene mm. again a big a big number yes, not yes. just one a few percent it's, yes. it's, it's i huge... guess they're less likely to um come to medical attention so you're less likely to go to your gp with a normal result because that's mm. something that you've been reassured by mm. so it's scary in another way mm. in that we need to get the message across mm. um it's not so worrying if you haven't got a family history of these conditions but of course some people don't know their family history mm. so Family history has stood a really good way of um, trying to identify whether you might have one of these genetic factors. Yeah. Absolutely, but I imagine that one of the strongest motivating factors um, for people looking at these is if they do have a family history. So, again, if they do have a family history and they go for the test results, it's still important that we in primary care can pick up on that if it's relevant. Yes, yeah, really important. So it makes me think about the the regulation and the oversight that these companies or these tests have what 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 how are they regulated who can ask me that but uh, answer me that but um 
I don't really know. Much they? Much <laughs> 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 Apart from that, it's a wild west out there. But yeah. the, the, I mean, I, do you know about the device? Um, well, I think they're regulated as um, as medical devices, um, both in the um, in the EU and I think tests that claim to report on health risks in the US. They're regulated by the FDA as kind of being medical devices. So there are, um, I think, stipulations that go along with that. But some of it, I think, is about the accuracy of does your kit for collecting your saliva right. make kind of DNA in a reputable yeah. way and stuff rather than so much on the interpretation of mm. the reports. And I think there is some regulation around that and that's why, um, for example, tests which have been uh, d- doing the kind of BRCA very limited three variant looking tests have had to get specific approval for that and have um, disclaimers around it in mm. order to use those tests. And in fact, the 23andMe um, test that Rachel referred to, that's got a fantastic website with really mm. good information and a lot of what we're saying here is on the website. Mm. It, it's just that there's so much on information mm. on the website that it, that might not come to people's attention. They might not realise that. Um, how you regulate for people realising small print stuff, I do not know. Yeah. So do you think we need to be doing something differently, either you know, on a society level or in the medical professional about this problem? Uh, well, this is a very global answer, but one thing that I do notice is that genetics is still talked about and described in the media in a very deterministic way. Uh, Rachel did a very nice review of newspaper articles that showed that really any uh, article about genetics is associated with a nice... Um, glossy technical image um, and rarely anything about the messiness of genetics. So I think the public understanding is much more likely to be that a genetic test is something nice and clear and accurate and so if we can modify that message a little bit it'll be much easier to get across the fact that um, this is a screening test and you need to rely on other factors and go on to have other tests before you know whether this provisional result is is a real result. And um, I also think I, I think um, a lot of companies, when it gets to the point of delivering a result, have some quite clear information around it. And they do have disclaimers that you can see on their website when you're thinking of having the test. But I think the kind of advertising of these tests as well often applies a kind of a clarity and a usefulness to them that I'd say isn't necessarily there. Like, for example, I get advertised them for like Mother's Day for Christmas as this kind of easy gift to help someone know more about themselves. Um, And from some um, work that we did um, relating to this article with the patient and public involvement group um, at our hospital, um, I think a lot of people were quite shocked by the limitations of these tests, um, had very much perceived that it was clear cut and useful information and had actually thought of getting one of these tests as being a a really responsible thing to do and when we brought up questions about it costs a lot of money kind of dealing with the consequences of these tests and and what should happen around that um, I think a lot of people thought actually um, getting this test would be something that would be really helpful for the NHS because I'd find out some health risk that we could then mitigate and avoid becoming unwell in the future Um, so I think there's a lot of sort of um, very high expectation around how useful these tests are going to be um, th- these companies do have disclaimers and uh, and things but um, but yeah making them work uh, or kind of making them get into the advertising in a prominent way mm. um, I think there's scope to do things differently sure and I understand that the RCGP are publishing some new guidance for GPs soon um, is that right 
Jeez. We, we've been we've been working with Annika and um, through the British Society for Genomic Medicine around well, producing a position statement, essentially highlighting the issues and presenting the, the college's position, and also giving advice to GP about how to manage these sorts of results, and you know, including information about the limitations of them. So we, we've been working in partnership with Annika and the BSGM around this. We're hoping that in a few months we should have a very useful resource for GPs to be able to access. Well, I, can, I think we can see that, you know, these tests are complicated and there's there's a lot of context required to really understand what, what these tests mean for, for the individual who's who's had them. And that, that sort of support is, is provided within the NHS, within genetic services. As a, a, a GP or perhaps a, a non-specialist who may be having a conversation with a patient about these tests, what, what, what sort of things can you kind of tips can you give us in which to help these people? Well, I, th- I think as Ju said, probably the most important tip is don't go by the result alone and take a family history. Now, you may want to ask uh, family history clinics or genetic services for help with that, but um, a, a simple family history will go a long way in terms of telling you what, um, uh, what the likely risk is from a family history, and that's a very good indication of um, whether they might want this genetic test result might be a, um, a, a real finding or not. So put it one way, if you have no family history, if you could take a good family history and you have no family history of the condition in question, yet you have a positive result, that's very uh, unlikely to be a true positive. If you have a negative result and you have a strong family history of, for example, breast and ovarian cancer, then do refer, as you always would have done, via NICE guidelines, for example, uh, ignoring that uh, negative result. Mm. And I think as a GP, that I mean, there have been instances where GPs have said people have come and asked the GP what they think about these tests and whether they should go for them. And and that, again, I think it's it's just important that in primary care we're aware of the limitations and that we encourage patients to look really hard on the websites and make sure that there is clear information there about what the test is and what it's going to tell them and to make sure that the company is going to provide them with adequate information and the route to go back and ask questions directly of the company afterwards as well. Yes. So we can see this is a growing area. Um, clinical genetic services probably can't cope with the demand of every single question about this. Um, are, G- are GPs going to be able to cope? Yeah, there's a significant cost to the NHS in terms mm. of GP time and then onward referral to secondary care uh, and uh, the laboratory work involved in checking these results. So it really is not an insignificant mm. cost. But I think one of the things to remember is that the biggest problem arises from third party interpretation. Now, that might sound a bit techie, but it's when you've bought your ancestry test, you've asked for your raw data, which I understand is an increasing problem, and you've then sent it off to somewhere else for analysis, because then you sort of bypass the what the original test was uh, aiming to do. So mm. the original test clearly says this is your ancestry results, but mm. then you use your data to get some health results. And that's when you're most likely to come across these false positives. Mm. I think without... Um more discussion and awareness to get around it there's possibly the risk that these things are are very much happening but going like under the radar like if someone gets a false positive but everyone treats it healthcare professionals included as if it's a true positive then you know you congratulate Mm. yourself for having kind of prevented someone getting this disease that they were never at high Mm. risk of getting anyway Mm. um or you know someone has this test and is falsely reassured and we all think oh that's great you're not at risk (laughs) but um i think part of the 
preparedness, I suppose, is making people aware that the tests do have such mm. big limitations mm. and mm. need to be interpreted with so much caution. Sure. Yes, and I think it, going back to the issue of false positive results as well, I think one of the cases in in, um, in the paper illustrates really nicely that anxiety generated by a false positive doesn't necessarily go away when the test comes back showing that it was actually negative. The anxiety generated for somebody can actually stay on and continue to have an impact on them and the way that they manage their health. And one of the interesting things I've observed is that when people have paid for a test, they um, might subliminally think that it's a more accurate test than when it's free on the NHS. Right. That's right, the, the budget test that the NHS does not being as good as the, the one they pay for. Yeah. You've been listening to Rachel Horton, Annika Lucasen, and Jude Hayward discussing direct-to-consumer genetic tests. The Practice Pointer article is available now on bmj.com. That's it for this podcast, but we'll be back soon with more free CPD. Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from, so don't miss out on those. I'm Tom Nolan. Bye for now.